From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Better Call Saul, the prequel to Breaking Bad, has only three episodes left. Today, we talk with the show's star, Bob Odenkirk. We'll also hear from Peter Gould, the writer who created the character Saul on Breaking Bad and went on to co-create Better Call Saul. While filming one scene, Odenkirk had a near-fatal heart attack. He'll tell us about returning to life and to that scene. Also, we talk with Corey Silverberg, author of books for kids about gender, sex, and where babies come from. Silverberg is a sex educator who was raised by a children's librarian and a sex therapist and identifies as queer. And our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, talks about figuring out what to read when you're stuck in an airport or plane. There's only three episodes left of Better Call Saul, a series that has a lot of fans on the Fresh Air team, and a series our TV critic, David Biancouli, said could end up as the best dramatic TV series ever made. Better Call Saul is the prequel to Breaking Bad. Saul Goodman, as we know him, would not exist without my two guests. Bob Odenkirk played Saul in Breaking Bad and stars in Better Call Saul. Peter Gould created the character Saul when Gould was a writer on Breaking Bad. After that series ended, Gould co-created Better Call Saul and is now the showrunner. Better Call Saul is nominated for Emmys as Best Drama Series and Outstanding Writing in a Drama Series. Bob Odenkirk is nominated for Best Actor in a Drama Series. Odenkirk also has a memoir called Comedy, 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 Drama. In Breaking Bad, Saul was a lawyer who worked on two levels— He was a slip-and-fall, I'll-sue-anyone kind of lawyer, working out of an ostentatious office in Albuquerque. He starred in his own TV and radio ads, like this one. Oh, hello. I was just working on a multi-million dollar lawsuit for one of my clients. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, a lawsuit sounds good, Saul, but uh, who can I sue? Who can you sue? Try police departments, libraries, construction companies, school officials, cleaning services, financial institutions, local and international, your neighbors, your family members, your church, synagogue, or other religious institution, your employers, your employers' customers, suppliers, companies in other countries, companies that made the drugs that were turned into the drugs that you took. The possibilities are limitless. But Saul, How can I sue these people and institutions? I have no grounds. Do me a favor. Let me answer that question in person. Better call Saul. Saul had a talent for using scams and his motor mouth to win cases and cash in on lawsuits. His secret business was much more treacherous, representing drug lords. In that part of his life, his motor mouth got him out of trouble, but also deeper into trouble. Better call Saul goes back in time to tell Saul's origin story before the Breaking Bad era, before he was even known as Saul Goodman, when he went by his real name, Jimmy McGill. Jimmy had been a scam artist as a teenager and eventually tried to follow in the footsteps of his successful brother Chuck, a partner in a corporate law firm. Jimmy did become a lawyer, but for various reasons kept sabotaging himself and got involved with representing someone from a drug cartel. As all that was happening, he fell in love with a lawyer, Kim, played by Ray Seahorn. She's a great lawyer, but joins him in legal scams as well as some dangerous pranks. When this winds up in tragedy, Kim decides she can no longer practice law and withdraws from the Bar Association. 
In this scene, Jimmy begs her not to give up Loa. You did what? Why? Why? All right, all right, I know why. But Kim, you can't just... Jimmy, I... I, Just let me say my piece, okay? Just, Just take a breath here. Kim, after everything that happened, I mean, Jesus, I get it. You want to climb out of your own skin. That's natural. But Kim, you don't just throw everything away. This is your life. You're a lawyer. What about your clients, huh? What about uh, that poor guy, uh, Mr. Yarborough? What about the kid in foster care? Huh? You give them everything you've got. Who are they going to find who's half as good as you? No one. They need you. It's already done. Oh. Okay, what's done can be undone. All I'm saying is just, just let's take a week or two to think it over. For now, we're going to take some time off. God knows we need it. We're going to find a new place. We're going to leave here. We're never, ever going to come back here again. Okay, we're going we're gonna to put it behind us. Things will look brighter. I guarantee it. But first, we have to fix this. So we're going to go back to the hotel room, and you're going to write letters. You're going to write a letter to the bar. You're going to write letters to your clients. You, you, you dictate. I will type. We're going to roll this thing back. I'll order a pizza. We'll pull an all-nighter because we're in this together. Bob Odenkirk, Peter Gould, welcome to Fresh Air. Congratulations to you both on this terrific series. Um, and I should say, if you want to find out Kim's response to this, I'm not going to say what it is, but it's a really interesting turn. And so if you want to catch up, definitely watch this episode. Um, but, but you're like hyperventilating in this scene. You're like gulping air and almost like choking on it. Um, did you know you had this in you when you were doing sketch comedy? <laughs> I was a waiter at a restaurant that served uh, hamburgers, <laughs> and part of the gag of the restaurant was you were supposed to be a smartass to people. And uh, I learned very quickly that I hurt everyone's feelings, <laughs> whereas the waitresses and many of the other waiters could walk around and say, sit your ass down, and everyone would laugh. If I said, sit your ass down, they, they ran out of the restaurant. <laughs> There's a softness that I didn't have in my um, presentation that works well in drama acting. (laughs) Uh, It feels very direct, I think, when I say things. Even when I don't mean them that way, it can feel that way. And now I find myself in in moments like this and scenes like that, being able to cut loose, and, and I think that works for me. Peter, you came up with the idea of the character Saul. What was your initial conception? And what need did did you think he filled in the show? Uh, You know, the show, if you cast your mind back to Breaking Bad, um, it had taken a very dark turn. Season one of Breaking Bad, Hank Schrader, played by Dean Norris, was sort of, in a way, he was the comic relief. You know, he was the guy who was happy with himself, happy with his place in the world. But by the time we got to the middle of season two, Hank had been in a shootout. He had PTSD. He was in a very a state of uh, bummerdom. And uh, I don't think we never thought, OK, we need this or that for the show. We never said, OK, we need everything's dark. We need something light. But as we were talking about what could happen next, that now that Walt and Jesse are trying to sell drugs, the question came up, what happens if one of their guys gets arrested? And of course, then they have to go to a drug lawyer. 
And uh, somebody said, you know, what if his name is Saul Good? Like, it's all good. And then somebody said, Saul Good Man. And then somebody's talk, somebody talked about the Cadillac and the uh, license plate. And I, I think we just thought he was going to be this slickster who was going to be Walt and Jesse's guide into the underworld. You know, he was going to be kind of like a helper character who'd, who'd, who'd help them and, and kind of watch, look out for himself along the way. And uh, having said that, once we started thinking about him, we just had so much fun because he was happy with himself. And also he was the, the only character who wasn't tormented by his misdeeds. He saw things very, it seemed to, on Breaking Bad, he saw things very mechanically. He would always see the shortest distance between two points. And he'd say, why don't you just do that, no matter how violent or distasteful that Why don't you just be. kill him and get rid of him and solve your problem? <laughs> exactly. Wait, why are you doing all this? Just go ahead, kill Badger. Uh, he could be, get, get him shanked in the chow line. It's easy, guys. Uh, so he was just fun. And, and this is, you know, this is the amazing thing about being a dramatic writer. Then Bob comes in and plays the role and you start seeing there's more to him than that original conception. And he, you know, we gave him, I think, in one of his first scenes, like two pages of dialogue. And what Bob did was he created all these transitions in this big wall of dialogue, all these transitions. He interrupts himself. And some of it was written in there. But what you saw was that there's a guy who's thinking a mile a minute. And maybe there's a little layer of, you know, his confidence isn't as high as maybe he maybe he's putting forth to the world. Uh, and, and so that was having Bob play the role absolutely changed everything. So I'm curious, Bob, in playing Saul, you've talked about how you patterned his voice a little bit on the film producer, Robert Evans, who produced The Godfather, on hearing him do the audiobook for his memoir, The Kid Stays in the Picture. And you, you've talked about basing the character a little bit on, on your agent, Ari Emanuel, or at least he, he was your agent. I don't know if he is now. But, but really, in terms of like the line readings, did you like write out some kind of score for them, like where to breathe, where to like pause, where to swallow hard? Because uh, there's so many things going on when you talk. Uh, thank you for the compliment. Um, and it, all the things you said about my process on approaching this was, are true. I, I did put in little breaks. I, I would put like a double hash mark in to the dialogue at places where I saw that kind of, how can I put it? I don't want to say artificial, but it is kind of a manipulated cliffhanger delivery um, and, and it's not sort of normal speech patterns. And, and so, you know, that's how I, I made use of, of what I perceived as his uh, excellent and amazing uh, and involving delivery. And, and I just tried to make that a part of presenting Saul to the world. My guests are Bob Odenkirk, who played Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad and stars in the prequel Better Call Saul, and Peter Gould, who created the character of Saul when he was a writer on Breaking Bad and is the co-creator and showrunner of Better Call Saul. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and book critic Maureen Corrigan will talk about figuring out what to read this summer while stuck in airports and planes with long delays. 
I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teladoc.com slash fresh air. Let's get back to my interview with Bob Odenkirk and Peter Gould. Odenkirk played the fast-talking, sleazy lawyer Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad and stars in the prequel Better Call Saul. Gould created the character of Saul when Gould was a writer on Breaking Bad. He co-created Better Call Saul and is the showrunner. We recorded the interview July 19th. So I I, I want to ask about something um, that happened during the shooting of the episode that was just on last Monday. And 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 that is that Bob, you had a heart attack while while that's while that episode was being shot. And um my understanding is that, that you flatlined and were brought to life because there was um there was a defibrillator uh that one one of the people working on set had. Um so uh, where where were you in the process of of shooting that episode when this happened? Well, Peter, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong because I my memory is a zero <laughs> for the incident. Uh, I was informed about a lot of what happened around uh, the heart attack. Um, the day was the day where Lalo is, I think, has shot. Um, Howard and he sit us sits us down. It's episode eight, and he sits us down and he's talking to Kim and Jimmy about his plan, about the plan for the night. One of them is supposed to go and shoot Gus, and I think we got most of that scene done. And then I had a heart attack. And then five weeks later, after I had surgery and recuperation, uh, we came back and began to shoot episode nine. Um, and then about a week and a half, maybe, into shooting episode nine, we went back to the scene that we didn't finish, and we shot the remainder of that scene with Vince Gilligan directing, because he directed eight. Is that right, Peter? Do I have that right? I think that's exactly right, Bob. Yeah. I think the idea was to start start you back with something that was a little bit more straightforward before getting into that, that big, juicy scene again. So this is the scene you were in the middle of the scene where Lala, which is part of who's part of the drug cartel, is threatening you and Kim. Right. And so that is the one scene where it's Bob Odenkirk before dying <laughs> and Bob Odenkirk's second life <laughs> um, with the Lalo talking to me and Kim. And uh, I kind of screwed it up in an interview I did the other day. Uh, so I'm glad to have this opportunity to clarify um, so did you feel like you were a changed person when you returned to the set and that it was hard to get into that uh, same emotional and physical place that you were before the heart attack? Uh, I definitely took it into account and I felt I had a challenge in front of me. I came out of that incident with the heart attack with a strange, uh, fresh energy <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't see a white light. I didn't have a flashback on my life. I really had like a mind wipe 
<laughs> I think it's called medically. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help but laugh. It's such a strange um, why you know I I really just lost that time completely, and I came out of it with a strangely fresh energy towards my whole life. Um, like I like I was born again. Uh, <laughs> like hey everybody, look where we are. Let's go back to work and make stuff. And this is my family, and this is great. Uh, I really kind of had an upbeat. A let's go get them energy. <laughs> was that different from who you were before? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I think, you know, um, in real life, I'm probably a bit of a grumbler and a person who gets worn down. And and uh, and, and so it was a kind of an upbeat freshness uh, towards everything, towards uh, the the uh, character of Bob Odenkirk that I get to be <laughs> uh, in real life. And, and it was really, uh, I think, disconcerting uh, for some of the people around me. Probably a better choice than me being, I don't know, sluggish and dragging myself and feeling, I don't know, some negative way. I, 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 uh, I, but to some extent, I think people looked at me like, What's wrong with you? <laughs> you died. <laughs> You're you shouldn't be so uh happy. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, how did it look from your point of view when Bob came back and had this this energy and uh, it sounds like optimism and 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 gratitude. I, of course we didn't know what to expect and Bob is always fun on the set and he's always generous and, and great but there was an extra, extra bit of Mr. Wonderful, uh, <laughs> I have to say, as when he came back, and you know, it was a, it was a very suspenseful moment because we were, uh, you know, I, I, I was not there when Bob, when Bob got sick, but I was there when he came back, and we were all wondering, you know, what's it going to be like, and it turned out it was great, uh, and it was, you know, one of the most hopeful things imaginable, especially, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and all, all the, you know, and, and it's somebody you really care about and who's so important in your life gets, you know, seriously ill, to have him come back and have him in sort of an elevated state is just, you know, it's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And then, of course, we did some of the darkest, most difficult stuff that we ever had on the show. You know, Bob, I'm sure as an actor, you want to give, you know, your part, everything you've got. Did you have doctors who discouraged you from doing that and said, just like, pull back, take it easy, you know, don't work as hard? There's no question they did ask me to calm down and slow down. I mean, they really, really pushed hard to get me to um, control uh, how much uh, I got involved with and how much I exerted myself. You can't calm down in character, though. That character is never calm. Yeah. Well, we did limit the hours. Um, that was kind of a big deal, and it was very necessary, too. I mean, it's just a technical thing, but the truth is I only had energy to do it for about eight or nine hours a day, and usually we shot for 14 oh, hours wow. a day. That is a long time. So, yeah. so they cut us back. They cut me back to 12 hours door-to-door -door 
Um, and that was very necessary, as it turns out. I felt a little bad about it, but it was absolutely necessary. I kind of conked out after about eight hours every day. And um, here's what it did for me, Terry. It, it made it even easier, much easier, to be in the moment. This kind of weird, fresh energy that I had um, of just being in the moment, of, of looking at the world almost like you just woke up and don't remember anything is like a very in-the-moment energy. It's like, look around, look where we are, look at this place. <laughs> My wife, you know, straggled in after a day of not sleeping and getting phone calls and having a private jet that Sony was so good to send to get her in New York. And she came into the ho uh, the hospital room and, and I popped up after surgery that morning going, let's go to work. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? And she was yes. like, what the hell? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and that energy carried through and, and it made it easier to be in the moment, which is your job as an actor. That's the, that's the, that's the weird uh, mind game you play is getting yourself in the moment of someone else's life, but really feeling on the edge of, I don't know what happens next here. And if you can make that real in your mind, and, and it was easier for me to do with this kind of weird newfound POV on, on the world, on, on existence, um, you know, it's really advantageous to playing moments and, and, and to acting. So <laughs> it's a little uh, little um, shortcut every, to all you actors out there. Have a... Have a brief moment of death. Well, that sounds like great advice. <laughs> <laughs> did that did that outlook stay with you, or, or did it fade over time? Um, I I um, think it fades, but uh, I also experienced it once, so I I can think back on it and reconnect with it. And I want to do that literally every day of my life. I, I really want to stay in touch with what happened there because it it really was a a great re oh, uh, connection to being alive and so i'd love to ruminate on it every day and try to reconnect well, i just want to say thank goodness you're well and and you know that you're alive and and healthy and and working and um, hooray! <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, I'll just add that um, Rosa Estrada. It, we were very lucky that this woman was nearby because she uh, knew how to do CPR properly, and she had the AED in her car, and she only had it in her car because she was returning it to somebody who she borrowed. Is that it the from. defibrillator? Yeah. It wasn't an official thing on our set. Oh, it was just coincidence her, that it was there. It was total crazy coincidence in that she had put it in her car, and she, I guess she had tried to return it, but the friend wasn't home. Otherwise, she wouldn't have had it either. And uh, so it's only because of that circumstance that it was in the trunk of her car. And... Uh, I'm sure that helped me immensely. I mean, the, the CPR is number one. But the fact is I didn't get a heart rate for 18 minutes after this started. And, that, and that's a long so time. So that's a long time. Um, but CPR, the fact that it was done 
almost immediately within a minute, a minute and a half, and it was done so well. It was done properly. That's what really saved me. Yeah, and thank God it did. Thanks to both of you so much. Thanks for being on our show. Thank you for Breaking Bad and for Better Call Saul. Um, so Bob Odenkirk, Peter Gould, thank you so much. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Terry. That was great. Bob Odenkirk stars in the AMC series Better Call Saul. His memoir is called Comedy, 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 Drama. Peter Gould is the series' co-creator and showrunner. Better Call Saul is nominated for Emmys as Best Drama Series and Outstanding Writing in a Drama Series. Bob Odenkirk is nominated for Best Actor in a Drama Series. By now, we've all heard the stories about what an ordeal air travel is this summer. Soaring ticket prices, overbooked and canceled flights. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, has been on some of those flights, and she has a reflection on the literary genre known as airplane books. I'm masked and buckled up, this time round, in a middle seat. Surely the only creature more miserable than me right now is a nearby support dog, a pit bull, who's dutifully wedged himself under his human seat. At least this flight is taking off, unlike my earlier one that was abruptly canceled. After two pandemic years of mostly staying in place, I'm flying a lot this summer, sometimes for work, sometimes to visit family and friends. The flights, all full, have been cross-country tests of endurance, bereft of space and food, but being vacuum-packed into an airborne, possible COVID container doesn't do much for the appetite anyway. We all get through the ordeal in our own ways. I've noticed that my fellow passengers are usually glued to dystopian apocalyptic disaster movies where human beings battle against aliens or robots. Who am I to judge? By now, I've faced up to the fact that all I want to read when I'm buckled into a cramped space is a suspense story. What some people dismiss as airplane books, I think of as oxygen masks for the spirit. On my first cross-country flight in May, I carried a couple of literary novels. The flight took off, I started reading, and neither book lived up to its promise. Because I just don't like to read on screens, I was trapped and miserable for five-plus hours. But something wonderful happened when I reached my destination in California— I walked into the local library to find a restroom, and near the checkout desk was a wall of used books for sale. For 50 cents to a dollar, I scooped up suspense novels by the holy trinity of Lisa Scottolini, Daniel Silva, and Michael Connolly. Some I'd read but had semi-forgotten. Others were new to me. I was transported, literally and figuratively, on the flight home. Recently, in Oregon, I found similar deliverance in a strip mall used bookstore that was filled with historical and domestic suspense by lesser-known writers like Lauren Belfer, Jeffrey Household, and Celia Fremlin. I lose myself in these kinds of novels for all the obvious reasons— 
But given the extra tense, extra claustrophobic current conditions of flying, maybe there's an added lure to reading suspense stories where the protagonists typically find themselves jammed into tight spots. Take Connolly's 1998 standalone thriller, Blood Work, where a retired FBI agent is marooned in a marina on his late father's broken-down fishing boat. Set up by a serial killer, the agent must mostly sit still and brainstorm how to outmaneuver his opponent. Or there's Jeffrey Household's 1939 novel, Rogue Male, where a failed Hitler assassin conceals himself from his pursuers in a burrow, some two feet in diameter that he's dug out of a hillside. Maybe, like my fellow passengers with their apocalyptic disaster movies, I find solace in adventure stories that mirror and intensify my own immobile misery in the air. The view is different, however, from the cockpit. That's what Mark Van Honecker tells us in his new book called Imagine a City, part memoir, part travelogue, part history, all entrancing. Van Honecker is a commercial pilot and writer whose previous book, Skyfaring, was a bestseller. In Imagine a City, Van Honecker describes his temporary encounters with many of the world's cities, Brasilia, L.A., Delhi, interspersed with touchdowns in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where he grew up and came to terms with his identity as a gay man. Van Honecker's voice is so contemplative, it holds the disparate parts of this odd book together. Here, for instance, he talks about the singular experience that long-haul pilots and crews have of cities. After we land, we have the opportunity to repeat or deepen a set of urban experiences that are like those of no one else. Our stays in cities, in so many cities, are typically short but frequent, carefully arranged around our legal responsibility to rest, but also freedom-giving and time-bending. I couldn't have read Imagine a City on any of my recent flights. I would have been too resentful. But on ground, Van Honecker's generous view is a reminder of just how extraordinary the whole mess of air travel still really is. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. Coming up, sex educator and author Corey Silverberg talks about talking with kids about gender, sex, and all the confusing things that go along with them. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. Half a million businesses connect using Zoom, a single platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video. Zoom enables real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom's secure and reliable platform is easy to manage, use, and customize for large enterprises, small businesses, and individuals alike. Zoom, how the world connects. Our guest, Corey Silverberg, is a sex educator who is the child of a children's librarian and a sex therapist and identifies as queer. Silverberg's books focus on sex education for kids. Their latest book is geared toward young people hitting puberty and their parents and caregivers. 
Silverberg spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast, Truth Be Told. Here's Tanya with more. How do you talk to kids about sex? Better yet, how do you talk to yourself about it? Corey Silverberg has spent much of their adult life exploring what they call the complexity and beauty of sex, bodies, and gender. Silverberg's latest book, You Know, Sex, Bodies, Gender, Puberty, and Other Things, is part of a trilogy which includes What Makes a Baby and Sex is a Funny Word. These books are described as some of the first of their kind to not only teach children about the basics of sex, but also those stickier topics like how one's identity as straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, or gender nonconforming factors into our sexuality. Much of Silberberg's approach has come from their own experience as a queer gender nonconforming person. Silberberg's father was a sex therapist, but growing up, Silberberg struggled to find language to understand their feelings and emotions. In addition to being an author and educator, Corey Silverberg was a founding member of Come As You Are, a sex-positive sex shop located in Toronto, Canada, and co-author of The Ultimate Guide to Sex and Disability. Okay, so before we get started, a note to everyone, especially those listening with children. In this conversation, we will not be describing anything explicit, but we will be talking about sex. And with that, Corey Silverberg, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you for being here. One reviewer of your book says that your book is, quote, bucking decades of conventional wisdom on how to teach kids about intimacy and sex. You're a sex educator, and you know a lot about the history of sex ed. What theories were there before? (laughs) <laughs> I love that question because the answer is not very many. <laughs> so actually, like sex education is very under-theorized. So I'm sort of talking in a more kind of academic way or pedagogically. There is not a lot of theory about sex and sex education, period. There still isn't. Um, you know, there's theories of development, but those those theories were not written in the context of sexual development. So a lot of us have just been flying by the seat of our pants and doing our best. And, you know, and I'm lucky that there were these educators who would write these books. And, you know, the bucking, uh, the the tradition or the trends, part of that is also who you center, right? So a lot of sex education centers either the adult expert and what they think young people as a population need to know, or it centers parents and their fears and concerns. Our books center young people. This is really interesting. Near the beginning of the book, you define the word sex, and you do it in three different ways. Can you talk about those three different ways briefly? Well, so, you know, the first thing I want kids to know is that sex is a word, right? Because we think of it as this objective thing that exists. And for young people, they often think about it as this thing that they don't know about, that they're not supposed to know about, and that therefore they're usually a little bit curious about. Um, And I really want to kind of undo that that manufactured um, sort of titillation. And so we start by saying sex is a word. And we say it's a funny word because it's short, but it means many things. And the three things we start with are, first of all, that sex is a word we use to uh, define bodies, right? To describe bodies. So so humans have come up with this idea of male and female as categories. Uh, and we just say very quickly, there's more than those two categories. So there's that. Um, sex is also something people do uh, to feel good in their bodies. So for the younger children, that's all we say. Sex is something people do. do, do well, I think I, I say it's something people do to feel good in their bodies and to feel connected to other people. So that's sort of the second definition. And so for adults, of course, we would talk about that as having sex. And then the third 
a definition that we talk about when we talk about sex is that it's one way we can make babies. So it's one way that humans reproduce. Why was it important for you to separate and define these different types of sex? Well, because because we don't, right? So because so much sex education starts with reproduction. And the fact is that most of the sex that happens on the planet is not for reproduction. Um, sex is everywhere, right? It's in the media, it's in the books we read, it's in the news, and, and all of that stuff is not about reproduction. So for me, it was fundamental to start by separating these out, because that's our experience. And again, I, w- I would distinguish, you know, I'm not... I'm not a scientist, and I'm not, and I'm not giving a science lesson. And a science lesson is important, and there's lots of books that do that. This is a different book. This is a book that's talking about, that really looks at sex and gender as relational. So mm. when we think about these things as a relationship, it's actually important to start with the relationship. Um, mm. And so I really wanted to, you need to start by kind of breaking it down, because it does feel, for a lot of us, and this is not just true for young people, it feels like a monolith, right? It feels like this terrifying thing that we don't know enough about, that we probably aren't doing right. Um, and and the first thing I wanted to do is like, it's sort of just like asking everyone just to take a deep breath, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, ah, let's just let's just relax and, <laughs> and acknowledge that this is a thing in our world and that we can explore it uh, in ways that feel safe and comfortable, you know, and, and respect each other's boundaries. As a parent, I can tell you, yes, we're holding our breaths on this so much. And so looking (laughs) to materials to be able to put language to these things. But in addition to reproduction, most books on sex education also start out with the premise that sex is great and that eventually (laughs) you'll learn to enjoy it. But you actually assert that sometimes sex can be great or terrible, or somewhere in between. Why was this framing important for you as well? Because it's true. Mm. <laughs> like, this is this weird thing about, about, it's not just sex education, but the way that we talk about sex in our world is it doesn't actually reflect people's experience. So, you know, you mentioned that one of my older jobs was I had actually worked in kind of a queer feminist sex store. So for many years, I talked to people about their sex lives, adults, um, in these brief interactions. And so I've talked to thousands of people, and it was very clear to me that, like, everybody's experience of this is not what we ever see on TV, in movies, or in educational books. So it's true that, I mean, it's not, or let me put it this way, it's not true that sex is always great. It's not true that everyone's going to learn to enjoy it. Because the other thing, of course, is that some of us, and, and, and thanks to the community themselves, we now know that there's an orientation called asexual, that there's some of us who actually aren't that interested in the sex part of of this whole world, right? We might be interested in relationships and family and intimacy, but the idea of getting naked and doing things with someone else has no interest and never will, and that is perfectly fine, right? That's perfectly within the realm of predictable mm-hmm. human experience. So I don't want to set kids up for this idea that there's a future. I mean, let me also share this, that like part of my work as a queer person is to really be thinking about futures because when I was young, I didn't know that I had one. And that's actually what put me at the greatest risk. Um, And part of the problem, I mean, I'm a parent too, and it's very hard for us parents not to, of course, we want to imagine our kids' futures. That is fine and it makes sense and I do it. The problem is, is that we can't, right? We, We can never know what our kids' futures are going to be like and when we, when we tell them, this is your future, when we, when we give them picture books and educational books and say, you're going to get married or you're going to get this kind of job or you're going to find happiness in this way, when they don't, 
um, uh, it becomes a real problem. Corey, one question that parents have is when do you bring up sex? Who brings it up? And that comes from a place of parents asking, just tell me what's the right thing to do. Like, what do you tell parents when they ask you that question? So, um, I mean, part of the goal is that really, in a way, that sex becomes a daily conversation, right? So for me, the, like, there's always opportunities. So whether that's uh, the fleeting glimpse of a sexy music video or a news story about Me Too or, or an interaction a kid noticed in the playground that may be gendered in a particular way, all of those are examples of an opportunity to talk about sex. Because I guess I, I should have started by saying, to be very clear, when we say talk to kids about sex, we are not talking about activity. We're not talking about explaining how a baby is made, you know, with the activity. We're really talking about um, how we relate to each other, um, how, we, how we respect and treat each other's bodies. And the other last thing I'll say is, Parents actually do this and they just don't realize they're teaching about sex, right? Something I do say, a kind of more quippy thing that I should have started with, is in fact that, of course, we're teaching and talking to our kids about sex all the time. We just don't realize it, right? So, for example, if we are not watching a certain movie or there's a, you know, there's like you can watch this, you know, you can read this book series up to this point. If the reason is because it gets too sexually explicit, um, and we don't tell our kids that that's why we're teaching them something about sex. And of course, when we make those decisions, which I fully support, it's an opportunity to also say, like, because there's material in that book that I'm just not sure you're ready for yet. And I, being your parent, I'm still the one that's going to make those calls. And as you get older, you'll get to have more control over that. And it, again, just doing that, part of what's important about that is it lets our kids know they can ask questions. Right. Yeah. So what's what's most important, I would say, is just is to not shut it down. Right. I think the, the one thing that's harmful is to say, like, we can never talk about this. This is a revelation for many parents who probably didn't grow up that way, where if your parents didn't want you to know about something, you just didn't talk about it. <laughs> right. Exactly. It really it really is. Um, and and it's not something we're told. Right. I mean, this is, you know, of course, this is this other thing. Like now parents don't really get, you know, there's so many self-help books, but you know, most of us don't read them. And we're, so I really appreciate what you just said. We are not prepared because most of us were raised in a very different way. And we want to do it differently, but we're not quite sure how. Um, and and so, so again, I think that the minimum, if we just don't shut it down, even if we don't have answers, we're doing, we're doing a bit better, right? We're moving it a bit further along for the next generation. You know, another thing, there's a there's a population of folks who don't agree with your approach. Your second book, Sex is a Funny Word, it's on many banned lists, too many to list off. You've responded that people maybe just don't want their kids learning the way the world is. And that statement stopped me in my tracks because as a parent, there is the feeling that you want to keep your child as, quote, innocent as possible for as long as you can. What I'm hearing you saying, though, is that that might be a flawed perception of sex and also unrealistic in this world. Yeah, I think you're hearing me right. I mean, I would say, like, the thing I would say is, and like parents know this, is I think that the thing is that if you were to hold that feeling, Tanya, I would say that you're probably treating sex differently than other things because my guess is that you are telling, you know, that if you're, if it interactions with kids, you're being honest about, for example, 
the way the world really is around violence and police, um, or the way the world really is around bullying, or the way the world really is around climate chaos. Um, I'm sorry, I'm actually making assumptions, so maybe you wouldn't, but a lot of parents would. A lot of parents are really clear, for very clear safety reasons. There are some things in the world and you need to know about them. And then when it comes to sex, they're like, no, let's keep that away. Um, so I guess the other thing I want to make it really clear for parents who are listening is I think that the confusion sometimes is that parents think that what I might be talking about is explaining how intercourse works or how some other sexual activity works. And that's not what I'm talking about. In our books, like, you know, sex is a 432 page book and there is one page that describes sexual activity. Because that's not actually what kids want or need to know about, and I'm not really sure that uh, that like like how that learning happens is complicated. So when I say I want kids, I think that parents are don't want kids to know the way the world is. Sometimes what I'm talking about is some parents don't want their kids to know that there's more than two genders, right? And there are. Right? And some people think it's wrong, but that doesn't change the fact that there are. Right? And, and also, I think some people don't want their kids to know that, there is, that, that, that sex can be a site of, for example, violence and bullying. But of course, as soon as our kids get to middle school, they're going to experience that. Right? And so it's much more important. And there are ways, again, I think this, thing, this piece about, that you mentioned about innocence, you know, I'm not talking about harming our kids by giving them too much information. And I'm not talking about shocking them. This isn't like a tough love situation. There are ways, and this is what our book does, there are, there are ways of, of essentially gently introducing these issues and these topics um, in a way that like opens them up, allows kids to be curious, um, and then leaves it there. And then it's really for the parent and the kid to decide where are we going with this? What is our experience in our family, right? So maybe the family has fled violence or persecution. So for that family, my books make a lot of sense and they see themselves in our books. Um, and then for other families who have just been more fortunate and maybe haven't experienced a lot of violence and have a pretty stable life, some of this can be surprising. Um, but the other thing I always say to parents is like, they, they've survived, right? They are adults and they've survived. So they actually already have most of what they need to have these conversations. One thing you mentioned earlier is bullying. And in the book, you have an entire section devoted to the definition of joy, respect, and power. And we don't often discuss power as an element of the sexual experience. Can you talk a little bit more about why it was important to speak to young readers about power? Sure. Well, I mean, and this is something that I learned um, most specifically from my friend and colleague Bianca Iloriano, um, and really from most of like the teachers I have who are black and people of color and queer. Um, we need to talk about power. I mean, power is power is at the core of all of this, right? So when we're when I mean, if you zoom ahead and you talk about, for example, bullying, to describe bullying in a very narrow way, um, it doesn't really help because because what is it? It's a misuse of power. And so what does that mean? Well, when we're talking with young kids, but also with adults, we need to actually break down, well, what does that mean? Who has power? And how do we use it or misuse it? Um, and so, as you said, there's a chapter on power that starts very simply with, like, we all have power, right? And there's power in our voice, and there's power in our touch, and there's power in our ideas. But we don't all have access to the same kinds of power or the ability to do the same kinds of things. Um, because the other thing is that what we can say about, like, you know, part of what I'm always really interested in is like the things that we that connect all of us humans and the things that make us different. And something that connects all children all around the world is their lack of power, right? So children do not have most basic rights. 
They don't really have access to their body autonomy, right? We send them to school. Early on, we buy their clothes for them. We pull them out of the street, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, right? A lot of it is for their safety. We, we ensure that they survive. But that means that we make choices about their bodies without asking them. Um, and that goes on, you know, so for my audience here, like they've had that experience for 10 years. So I need to start by pointing it out to them because part of the problem is, is that because that happens... Again, often out of necessity. So I'm not saying like, you know, children run free um, necessarily. But because that happens, they get used to it and they, and they stop realizing that they do have power, that there's power even when they don't get to make the choices. They don't, their choices aren't the ones they want. When they can make a choice, that is power. When they can assert their body autonomy, even in a small way, that is power. And that to me is so much more important when it comes to a, a lesson about sexuality than talking about, you know, anatomy and how a body works. Corey Silverberg, thank you so much for this conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Corey Silverberg's latest book is called, you know, Sex, Bodies, Gender, Puberty, and Other Things. Silverberg spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast, Truth Be Told. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brugger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, and Rebel Donato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C. V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs> <laughs>